This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. What's it take to get your attention? What's it take to hold your attention? What currently has your attention? With so many things that are happening in our world today, it's easy to be glued to our phones and TVs with the endless news cycles, with the mystery box of the COVID color scheme in Colorado. DEFCON purple has been added to the wheel this week. And wondering what's going to happen with schools after Thanksgiving, after Christmas, in the new year, with maybe a new presidency. What is going to happen? There are so many things vying for your attention. In fact, we felt an absence of something to have our attention when sports were off this last fall. But, oh, thank the Lord, sports is back. And we're able to have our attention captivated by baseball and basketball, football once again. The Buffs are undefeated, if you didn't know. But, oh, did you hear? They didn't play this weekend because of COVID. What will happen to their season? Will they end maybe 2-0 and undefeated? Who knows? But who cares? What has your attention? How about more specifically, has God gotten your attention this year? I look at even this week with so much grief and sorrows of the things that many church families here at Calvary are experiencing. Tragic loss of loved ones. The experience of loved ones being in the hospital and not being able to be bedside with them in this season. There are so many things that should, that ought to grab our attention and direct it towards God and say, God, what are you up to? I'll tell you one of the most common questions that I've had in the last few months has been with brothers and sisters who are Christians and they simply call up and want to hang out because they don't know what tomorrow holds and they kind of want to know how to live in these days. And they'll ask this question, what in the world is going on? I don't know how to live. I don't know how to anticipate what's coming next. I don't know what's going to happen this next year, this next summer. With all of these different variables, what do we do? Well, today, I have good news for you. I'm going to tell you what's happening in the world today and what's going to happen in the world in the future. I'm going to tell you about the future. Not because I have a crystal ball and not because I had a vision, but because I opened my Bible. And in the Bible, it tells me as it's captivated my attention, what in the world is going on and where this world is going. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 29. Last week, Tom did a great job kind of coasting through several chapters in the end of Acts. And he said, we'll talk about Acts 29 this week. And so if you open your Bibles to Acts 29, you find out there's not an Acts chapter 29. What was he talking about? Well, it's kind of an insider language. It's a way that we talk about the church and its activity today. Remember, we started the book of Acts with this question, what is the church? Where did the church come from? How was the church started? And what is the church collectively? This was actually a gift, I think, to us this year. It was actually last November that we were praying about what should we preach in 2020? And we felt the conviction of preaching through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the historical account of how the church began and when we look around the world today, we see that the church has become the largest, most diverse group of people on the planet. And we wanted to look back and see how that start. 
How did that get going? Where did it come from? And we've been journeying through Acts this entire year, and there are so many treasures of truth that we have learned about what the church is and isn't. The church is not a building, it's a body. It's a bride, the bride of Christ. It is the gathering of people, small and large in many different ways, that want to submit themselves under the apostles' teaching, the word of God that we find here, to be able to pray together, break bread around the Lord's table, and to have fellowship, community with one another. And that was a leading charge for us as a church of how we've gathered in the last nine months in different ways, in different fashions, but yet still keeping the principles, the foundations of the church. And we've seen the church grow. And I don't know if you were here last week, but we highlighted so many of the baptisms that have happened just in the last couple of months here at Calvary. I might just tell you that there have probably been more baptisms in the last couple of months here at Calvary than perhaps the last year or more. God is actively on the move, reaching people that we thought we couldn't reach. From all different socioeconomic classes, backgrounds, Iranian Muslims are coming to Christ. The gospel has gone out into Buddhist households. They're asking questions about Christ. And many young and old have been listening to messages that are just posted online and have surrendered their life to Christ. I look at my year and I think about the ways in which I have actually led people to Christ over email, then to meet them and baptize them. God continues to do what we see early on is to move the church through a variety of mechanisms for people who are faithful to him. And if Taz one thing, it's this, that God is faithful. From the start to the end, we see that God is sovereignly faithful to accomplish all that he has commissioned. He is faithful to accomplish all that he has commissioned. And so let us remind ourselves of where the whole Acts story began in chapter one, where Jesus has ascended, having spent three years of ministry with the disciples. He has been crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day rose to new life. Has spent more than a month teaching his disciples, showing himself to hundreds of witnesses, and then ascended at the right hand of the Father, commissioning the disciples to do what seemed like an impossible task. Go into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem, out into Judea, then into Samaria, and reach the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel. Go tell the world this, God loves them. God has sent his son to die for them, to forgive them. And in the work of his resurrection, there is liberty from the bonds of sin and death for all those who would turn into him. And what we've seen through the chapters of Acts is how that gospel message right in Jerusalem with a small oppressed minority group began to permeate the city because the power of the Holy Spirit filled the church. And then from that city went to a neighboring city and then a neighboring city and across socioeconomic barriers, across gender barriers, across racial barriers, all to reconcile people into the family of God. And we've met a variety of characters, some that are positive and some that are negative, that have taught us a lot about who God is and who we are. But one of the main characters, not the main character, but one of the main characters is this man who was a murderer. We've been tracking his story for some time now. A murderer that came in contact with the grace of Jesus Christ and was transformed into a man of mercy, became a leading voice of the church. His name was Paul. And here at the very end, so let's go, since we can't go to Acts 29, let's go to the two verses just before it. 
Acts 28, Luke's account finishes up with these last two verses where Paul has come to his desires, God's commissioning to go from Jerusalem all the way to the Roman Empire, the ends of the earth and bring the gospel. And there in verse 30, we, we read this. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke ends his account of the early church with Paul in chains in Rome. And you think that's a defeating end. And we're not even sure what the end of the story is. Like, what happens to Paul? Where does he go? What happens after these two years are up? According to church history, this isn't going to be found in your Bible, but according to church history, at this time, he's maybe released because his uh, offenders didn't show up in the day of court. This two years is probably the judicial period in which the Roman judicial system says, okay, this is the time for those to make their case, both the prosecution and the defender, to call witnesses. And they have to travel. They can't just send in documents, PDF, fax machine, whatever. They have to actually bring them there. And perhaps this is an indication that in two years, an appropriate argument has not been made. And so that timeline has ended and Paul is actually released and maybe goes over to Spain and starts churches and preaches there only to be subsequently arrested under the reign of Nero and beheaded at that point. We don't know. God didn't intend for us to know. The story is open-ended, which is why it falls so easily into this proverbial Acts 29 is that there's a comma here. Luke doesn't intend to end the story of the church. He only intended to begin the story of the church. What we've read here for 28 chapters is merely the introduction, the preface of all the things that God has continued to do. Remember, Luke is the author of two books. First, the gospel, the historical account of all that Jesus began to do and teach of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then he writes to the same person, this, this Theophilus, of all that Jesus continued to do by the power of the Spirit through the apostles. But the apostles have had their day on the scene and they have come and gone. But it's our day now. What is the church up to now? What has the church's attention today that had the attention of Paul, that should have our attention as we live in the days today and the days to come next year? Well, we see it here at the very end, these last two verses. He lived in Rome for two years. This is probably under the emperor Nero. And, and you have a picture, when, when he arrives in Rome, Rome's idea of a, of a republic, of the voice of the people is long gone. Now an oppressive ruler who is both perverted and debased is ruling Rome. He has murdered his own mom. He has murdered his own wife. And soon after this, he will for probably his own amusement, historians tell us, set Rome on fire. In 64 AD, in the summer of 64, is when Rome was on fire for six nights and seven days. That during this time, perhaps Nero was doing it just for his own pleasure. And then with the backlash that came, he blamed the Christians for it. And a great persecution came where Christians were thrown to the Colosseum, fed to the lions, put on stakes, lit on fire to illuminate his own gardens. I mean, Nero would make any American leader look like Mary Poppins. And it's under his oppressive leadership that Paul sits in his home under arrest and continues to talk about the gospel. Now remember, before, before Paul got here, he sent a letter ahead of him 
to introduce himself to the churches that he didn't start, he didn't form, but to introduce himself, he wrote the letter of Romans. We spent an entire year in the letter of Romans. And if you remember, he writes this book of Romans to them as the ends of the earth, the whole earth now, the gospel hearing this message or the world hearing the gospel message. Paul is anxious to get to them and impart some spiritual gift, perhaps some teaching his own life to them. And he didn't realize that he would be there in chains though. But the chains have not stopped Paul, nor have his circumstances. He continues to preach. And he does like he's done in so many cities previous. He first comes to the synagogues. Now he's under house arrest here. And so he can't go to the synagogue. And so he posts some sort of announcement that he'd be willing to host the leaders of the Jewish synagogues. That first the gospel comes to God's people, Israel, so that they would know that Jesus is their promised Messiah. And then to the Gentiles. But first he gathers the leadership of the synagogues and they come to his home. And just like the prophets have foretold, some would hear and some would reject. In fact, the majority would reject. And so he, un, he, unla- he lays out, he unfolds from the prophets and Moses how Jesus is the promised Messiah. Just like Jesus did and knows that some will receive it and some will reject it. And then he will turn to the Gentiles. So see what happens. This is Acts 28, just a few verses before, starting in verse 24, hearing Paul teach this Jewish leadership. It says, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved and decreeing among themselves, they departed, or sorry, disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And he's about to quote Isaiah, this same passage that Jesus quoted to the leadership of Israel that rejected him. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceived. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This is the same scenario that Jesus was in, is the rejection of God's people, Israel. And so what does that mean for us today? Well, I want to set up the parameters of where we are in history that Paul has come into the ends of the earth with the gospel and the Jewish people in Rome rejected it like so many others before. Now, let me be really clear. Paul is not an anti-Semite. Paul loves his brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith. He loves them. He longs for them. He says he wishes he could give up his salvation if they could be saved for some, in some way. Jesus loved his, his own children. He stood outside Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I've desired to gather you like a mother would gather her chicks, but you weren't willing. In fact, you've closed your eyes. You have deafened your ears so that your heart would not receive your Messiah. And so there's a judgment on his people, Israel, to be set aside for a season. But that is not because he hates Israel or that anyone should hate Israel or the Jewish people. Let me be very clear. Anyone, whether it be a church, a platform of politics or social agenda that hates Israel, that hates the Jewish people, that is anti-Christ. No, they have not been rejected. 
In fact, they are in a pattern of holding for the purposes of the gospel. This is exactly what Paul talked about in the letter to Romans, the churches that he's now visiting about what happened with God's faithfulness, okay? So how is God still faithful if all the promises he had for Israel haven't been fulfilled? It looks like they've rejected their Messiah. Is God gonna reject them now and be faithless to them and try to pick up the pieces with the church? Not at all. But he has set them aside for a moment and the church has taken the center stage as the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the ones that will bear the gospel message to the ends of the earth. So let me show you where I get this. This is Romans chapter 11. So Romans 11 is talking about the faithfulness of God in the midst of the faithlessness of God's people. Romans 11, 11. So I ask you, did they stumble in order that they might fall? This is Israel. By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul looks forward to a day in history when God will bring back Israel and the full inclusion in the family. And the Gentiles who have come to faith should just simply rejoice that there has been made room for them. In fact, Paul goes on to speak to the Gentiles who are now, this is the church. Don't become arrogant. Don't think that you're better. Pay attention. Verse 17 of Romans 11. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. This olive tree is, is God, is Jesus Christ, multiple branches. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Don't lose faith. Don't have unbelief like them. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, these people, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. What a great word that is. That we would persevere, continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they did not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. Now, when you hear this word grafting, what does that mean? Here's the thing. I'm not an arborist. I know very little things about plants and trees. Many of them die in my yard. So don't ask me too many questions. But I was mesmerized one time living in California when my neighbor had what's called a citrus tree. It blew my mind. I walked next door and on this tree were both lemons and limes. I've never seen anything like it. I'm a Colorado boy, born and raised. And out here, not only are they producing citrus fruits, but this tree is like this magic tree producing two distinctly different fruits and yet coming from the same tree. It's because they grafted two trees together at its base and allowed it to grow up. And you have two distinct branches, but the same root, the same trunk. And so what he's saying here is, all right, church, there's been made room for you, Gentiles because of unbelief, but continue to persevere in the Lord's kindness. And the Lord is so kind 
that even in this day, this church age, where you will be the light and the salt to carry my message to the ends of the earth, I'm not done with Israel. No, 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 there's coming a day when I will regraft them in. We long for that day. He says this, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree where they belong? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. And then he quotes the prophet Ezekiel. So what does that have anything to do with us in Acts and Acts 29? At the end of Acts, we see Paul at the ends of the earth with the gospel. And here Israel, maybe one of the last synagogues for him to arrive at, has done what the prophet Isaiah said. They shut their eyes and they close their ears and they do not receive. And God sets them to the side and brings in this church, the body of Christ, all who believe in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, whomsoever comes to him, he will not turn away. And for this season of the age of the church, Israel will be jealous. It's to provoke them to jealousy, to perhaps receive their Messiah. We are not against Israel. We are for them. We are for the Jew to come to know their Messiah. We are foreigners in the family of God, but by his kindness and grace have been brought in. And you too, friend, the gospel message comes out to you to be brought in to the family of God. Whosoever hears is welcome. But that's the age that we live in. It's called the age of this church. And where is history going is to the conclusion of this age. When the fullness of the Gentiles is come. I mean, there's a time in which the preaching to the Gentiles to receive the gospel is over. And at that time, Christ comes to gather his church, to bring them to himself. And then in a time to regraft Israel back into the family and then to come and reign on the earth, bringing judgment, eventually restoring all things. But this is our day as the church. Even though modes change, this is our day with the message of the gospel that transforms lives, that transforms communities, This is what God is moving history to fulfill so that he can come again and bring two branches into one root system into his beloved son, Jesus Christ. This is why Acts ends not with a period, but with a comma. And what Paul's doing should be our model. Look back again at the final two verses. This is where we should take our cues for Acts 29 of how we live. It says, he lived there two whole years on his own expense. So he's paying for this somehow and welcomed all who came to him. I love that that, that Luke says all who came to him. There's so many times in the book of Acts where he's trying to reconcile people, Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, Scythians, all these people. And now it's just all people. They've all been brought in the family. There's no more of these divisions. There's reconciliation amongst people groups. It's whoever. Paul welcomes all who came, young and old, rich and poor, men and women, 
come to, to teach them. Not only just to have hospitality, but to teach them, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What does that mean with, with all boldness and hindrance? It means that he's not holding anything back. The preaching is the public proclamation. The teaching is the slow instruction for understanding. And he holds nothing back so that all who would come to him would know Christ. Do you find it funny that the book of Acts begins in a home, a prayer meeting, and the book of Acts ends in a home of a gathering of people hearing about the gospel? I've been so encouraged to see how Calvary families have opened up their homes for hospitality in this last season. Now, I know not everybody is able to do that. So don't hear me say that I wish everyone did. I know that many of us can't. But to hear how people have taken a, a step of courage and welcomed strangers into their home that they might hear about the gospel message to be built up in Christ, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. That's what Paul does on his own expense welcomes whomsoever would come into the house. He welcomes them so they would know the gospel. And I've been encouraged to hear stories of how even neighbors, just seeing signs in your yard that there was a church meeting there, have walked in to learn about Jesus. How you have now met them. And, and I've heard even that some are mentoring young believers who simply showed up at their front door asking to hear about Jesus. So encouraged by these things. There's a family here that lives on my street, Noah and Laura. And I'm impressed that this whole summer, they have intentionally called the neighborhood to gather. They've shown hospitality at their own expense. It's just wonderful to see. And that's a model of how we are to live. Think about Paul in the days ahead. How can we leverage our own hospitality, perhaps in person, perhaps virtually, to extend ourselves, perhaps at our own expense, for the sake of the gospel, even though he's in chains here. He's under house arrest. What does Paul know? What has, has his whole attention? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ in this season of the age of the church, knowing where all history is going, he remains hopeful. The last, probably one of the last letters he writes is to one of his mentees, a young pastor named Timothy. In 2 Timothy, his last letter to Timothy, chapter 2 Verse eight and nine and 10 shows what has Paul's attention, what's captivated him, what holds his attention and gives him the boldness of faith. It says this, from a prison cell, remember Jesus Christ, Timothy, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I mean, I'm wrestling, I'm fighting, I'm working for anyone that God has called and comes to him. And though I might be bound, the gospel is boundless. It's on the move. It cannot be stopped or quarantined, church. And with Paul's enthusiasm, he continues to preach every single day with boldness and without hindrance, holding nothing back. You see the perspective change? What has people's attentions? Perhaps his opposition has said, finally, victory is ours. Paul is in chains. And Paul is saying just the opposite. Victory is God's. 
the gospel is on the loose. Throughout Rome, it's on the loose and people are coming to Christ and being saved. That's what gets him excited. That's what should get us excited. Today is our day. We should be as creative as possible to get the gospel message out to as many people as possible to reconcile people to one another, to be people of peace, people of unity, to reconcile people back with one another and back to God. We should be people of justice and mercy and kindness. Why? Because we are gospel people who have our full attention on what's happening in the world today, this age, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in and then the Lord's return to reign and reconcile all things to himself. Where do you get courage to do that in the days ahead? The courage comes from belonging to Christ. Remember Jesus told his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem without the gift I'm giving you, which is the spirit of God dwelling in all who believe. That's the power. And it will remind you with that power that the church will advance. Remember what Jesus said? And the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. So many times I think in our mind, we think the gates of hell are somehow advancing on the church and we're on our heels and we have to promise and say, God's not gonna let us die. That's not the picture. Hell has the gates. They're trying to keep evil and wickedness in and the gospel is rushing in past the gates, knocking gates of evil down and permeating darkness with light. That's the promise, not on our heels on our toes, that hell itself won't be able to hold it out. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel advancing. And so how do you respond? If, if you've never accepted Jesus, what, how do you respond? It's simply this, it's through repentance. Whoever repents, turns from their evil and their wicked ways and surrenders their life to Jesus, recognizing that he's Lord, master of their life, that he is the son of God, and that he died and was raised to new life will be saved. You can make that profession today and join what's truly the story of history, what's really going on, that God is on an epic rescue mission, having sent his son, and now his body of believers are his ambassadors, messengers and ministers of reconciliation, going to all the corners of the earth with the good news of life and salvation. Now what's behind here? It's nothing. It's just something to hold your attention so that I could talk about the things that really matter.